Hey, if anybody is wanting to maybe get a little shade, Trent wanted me to let you know that there's some little square of heaven shade right here you can sit in. It's in the blast radius of my spittle, so that's kind of the downside, but the upside... You will not get burned. All right, so uh, there is that. Now, first of all, again, like Trent said, happy Father's Day to all the fathers, grandfathers, hope to be fathers, everybody else. We're very excited about dads and the purpose and uh, heart that dads serve within our world, so that's super cool. Uh, that's the first thing I just want to say. The other thing, uh, we just mentioned the church camp out, and I uh, hear it's going to be a, a simple 72 degrees with a breeze over there in the desert of uh, eastern Washington, so I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Now, before we get underway and I pray for the day, I want to remind you that we do have a church app on that app, you can follow along not only with the songs while we're out here on the lot on Sunday, and for those watching online, we're super stoked to have you online as well, and you're able to see those words right underneath. But the other thing on our app is we have notes, and if you will notice for the summer, in the notes, we're actually putting like point one, point two, point three, point four. So for those of you who are like, I need some breadcrumbs to follow, Matt. I don't just need blanks all the time. We have a little bit more option for you that way. That way you can just kind of follow along, take some of this stuff home, really think about it as far as what Jesus may have for your life and what he would call you to be about and what to do. And today is going to be very much about that. In fact, I want to give you a warning in advance about today. Uh, it is among some of the most challenging challenges that Jesus gives to anybody who wants to follow him. And so this is one of those weird messages where we don't want to run away from the hard stuff, but we want to look at the hard stuff, embrace the hard stuff, and take on the challenge of the hard stuff. And so today is definitely a hard stuff kind of day. Uh, But again, it's for our good and for his glory. And so with that, I'm going to pray for all of us this morning, for those at home, for those here, and then we're going to get right into Luke chapter 14. So If you want to tap to that or turn to that, that's where we're going to be hanging out today, starting in verse 25. With that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get to business. Jesus, I thank you that you don't invite us to something that is casual or easy. You don't ask us to simply grab a hold of low-hanging fruit, but rather you say, I want you to go to the top of the tree. I want you to see the, the skyline that is there. You can see so much more when you strive and seek and claw your way to being more. Like, we know that from you. That's why you give us the challenges that you do. And so I pray that today, instead of kind of shrieking away from the challenge, instead of trying to doctor it up and say, that can't be the case, I pray that instead we would embrace what it is you have for us. We would embrace these, these new levels of growth and what it means to truly follow you, and we would welcome that. And so I pray that you would prepare our minds and our hearts and our very lives to embrace what you have for us. And so we look to you this morning to guide us, Jesus, in your good and perfect name. Amen. So this week for me was kind of a cool week because I think you know, at least anybody who's been around Redemption for a while, that I am a Seahawks fan. Not just like a fair-weathered fan, like a true fan, so much so that I, every time I'm in my car, I listen to sports radio, and I listen to sports radio hoping to get some new little morsel or tidbit about trades that are going on with the Seahawks or something for the next season or whatever else. And so this week was a big week because it was the mandatory OTAs for the Seahawks, right? So this is the organized training kind of activities that a team does. And so everybody has to roll in and be a part of it and everything else. And so for me then, as a fan, I go, tis the season for all the lingo, right? It's going to be Go Hawks and the 12s and I say C and you say we'll work on it. All right. It's early. I know it's June. You know, preseason isn't even until late in the summer. I get it. So, uh, but one of the Kind of the key mottos that the team uses is this phrase, all in, or I'm in. 
In fact, if you've ever seen a picture of their locker room, there's a big sign that goes out to the doors to the field, and it literally says, I'm in, and every player, as they go out that door, they hit that sign, and what they're doing in that is they're having this acknowledgement that says, as I go out these doors, I'm going to give my all. I'm determined. I'm driven. I will leave it all on the field. I will not hold back. I will not pull up. I will not be lazy. I'm going to make sure that I use my full talent, full speed, full strength to the full advantage of the team right? That's what I'm in is all about. And so I'm thinking about that motto of the team, and I'm thinking about then the message of Jesus here in Luke chapter 14. In some strange way, what we're looking at today is like Jesus's very own OTAs that are mandatory. It's his own training camp for anybody that says, I want to be where Jesus is going. I want to be what he's about. I want to follow in his footsteps. Anybody that says this, well, this is then that training camp that he is offering to everybody. And in that training camp, what he's looking to define is what it means to be truly in the game, all in. For us as individuals to say, I'm in with what Jesus is doing. So this starts in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus, and then he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, dot, dot, dot for a minute. We're going to stop there, right? So so here's what's happened. He's just met with the Pharisees. He's had another dinner with them. The dinner went terribly bad like it typically does. And it highlights again that Jesus is about something that's different than religion, that he brings a kingdom that's unlike the kingdom religion wanted. He is holy in a way that is wholly opposite of the holiness of the religious establishment of his day. And so from that now, this whole crowd is following him after dinner. And here's the thing about Jesus. He is awesome. He is epic at really drawing crowds, right? They dig being around him. They dig seeing what he's going to do, what he's going to say next. He's really great at getting a whole posse of people to be interested. But Jesus is not interested in crowds. He is not a megachurch pastor in that sense. He is not looking for looky-loos. He is not looking for fans. He's not looking for more butts in the pews. That's not his thing. He doesn't want groupies. He wants people that say, Jesus, I see what you're doing. I know what you're saying. I believe the challenge you're letting out, and I want to be a part of that. See, that's what he's interested in. And so he seeks, he invites, I would say he even dares people to become disciples. I mean, that's the word he uses. But here's the thing about that word in our 21st century kind of context. It's a strange word. Like, it's not a word we use very often. You hear disciple in the 21st century, and you're like, outside of Christianity, you're like, is that a culty thing? Is that something where you're part of a secret society and they're disciples? Is this something for people that wear robes with hoods and have ropes for belts? Is is that what a disciple is? Well, when we read this in the New Testament, this word disciple is very particular. And it has everything to do with the very first thing in your notes if you're following along in the app. To be a disciple is to be a follower, F-N-I, training, T. It's to be fit. Above all else, it means I'm going to try to figure out and be attentive to what it is Jesus does and how he does it, and I want to go where he's going in the process of that. That's a follower in training. Now, the word disciple from an etymological point of view, which is kind of the evolution of words as they develop over the course of time, it's a fascinating concept. In the original language of the New Testament, it's mathetes. It means learner or student. 
but it has more depth than even what those words capture. In fact, is a kind of transition into the old English language. It's uh, it's a combination of two words, which means basically a part, and in that to kind of investigate. So for a disciple, what they're really seeking to do is to say, I'm going to pry apart. I'm going to think a lot. I'm going to invest into, I'm going to re and re and re re check what this is all about. I want to see how Jesus does things, why Jesus does things. And then in that, I'm going to duplicate what I see. That is what Jesus is getting out with the disciple. So he doesn't just simply want us to have an academic approach to what it means to follow him. Right? We're not trying to get a degree in Jesus. We're not trying to get an A plus in our Christian theology class. What Jesus wants is something far more radical and deeper. He wants an apprenticeship. Right? This is why a Bible study alone won't do. This is why just kind of reading our Bibles alone won't do. Because he's like, I want more than that. I want you to take that information. I want you to take the challenges that are in there. And I want you to then go live those out, right? Put it in application in your hands, your attitudes, your outlooks, your affections, your actions in life. Like that's what it means to be a true disciple, a follower. It's truly an apprenticeship. And in the same way, if uh, you wanted to be fit physically, what that would mean is not simply that you set goals, but rather you have daily habits. Because here's the thing about being physically fit. Once you hit your goals, your goals will fall apart if you don't have daily habits, right? So you have to have daily habits to be physically fit. In the same way, we need to have habits daily to be spiritually fit. Because every day as a follower of Jesus, it's training. And every day, is hands-on doing and every day is prying apart and investigating the why and the how, right? Why Jesus did it, how he did it, and how to do it like him, right? Not simply to be religious, not simply to be like our fellow Christian friends, not simply to be like our social networks. Our goal is to be like Jesus. So whatever Jesus does, whatever Jesus says, that's what we want to do, right? That's the challenge that is before us. And so with this, If you want to be a true follower, Jesus says, you better buckle up. Because in verse 26, he says, if you want to be my disciple, a follower in training, you must. Whatever he says after you must, and we'll get to that, you know what it means in the original Greek language? You must, right? It's this bossy, almost demanding tone that he gives, And as Americans, we don't like to be bossed. We don't like to be told what to do, right? So Jesus' words automatically kind of confront us as it is. But here's the thing he's doing. He's doing us a huge favor. Because what he's actually getting to the point of is saying, you know what? I don't want to do a bait and switch sales pitch to you. He's like, I don't want this big crowd to be like, dude, we love Jesus. We're in it with Jesus. And he's like, that's right, everybody. I want more and more and more. And I'm going to lower the bar so everybody can be a part of it. He doesn't want that. So from the get-go, he says, all right, if you really want to follow, I'm going to let you know what that looks like. And it doesn't look easy, and it doesn't look simple. In other words, Jesus invites everyone to follow. But weirdly enough, he doesn't beg everybody to come. That's just not necessarily how he rolls. And strangely, strangely, he lowered himself in servanthood so that we could follow. But he doesn't lower the standard of following as we go after him. He just doesn't do it that way. And so he's saying, all right, if you really want to take this up, this is what you must do. And and this is a moment of candor I want to just be clear about for all of us today and for everybody watching online. Um, 
what he's going to say is a weird message even for Father's Day. It's gonna, you'll see it in your book. Yeah, that's strange, man. But I think we need to analyze this and, and honestly as individuals say, is this what I really want? Is this what I'm prepared to do? Is this what I actually own in my life? Now here's the thing I want to be clear about. You might do, own, seek this very imperfectly. I know I do. But even if we're imperfect, there still should be the heart of seeking it sincerely and humbly and with a sense of dedication, a want to do better every day, even as we do this all imperfectly. Because again, he wants followers, not simply fans. And so from this, the first thing that we will see is if somebody wants to be a follower in training, the fits, if you will, they must own Jesus's priorities, his priorities. And remember last week we learned that there's three great like kind of antagonistic elements to really owning the the life that Jesus wants us to live. They're not bad things or wrong things or sinful things, but they're things that want to contend for first place, right? Family was something that wants to contend for first place over God or occupation wants to contend for first place or our possessions, our money, our sense of security wants to contend for first place. And Jesus is like, no, I want to be first. And those things are to be next, but we sometimes invert it. We make family and job and possessions kind of one, two, three, and then we make Jesus four. Like, that's the temptation. But Jesus says, no, I I need to be the first priority. And so if you want to follow me and be like me, you must, verse 26, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple I read that and I'm like dang dog (laughs) like really on Father's Day this is when this is happening it's like happy Father's Day kids hate you hate you honey hate your mom and dad hate your kids all right because I love Jesus I hate y'all right like that this seems crazy I think sometimes I think people read this and they're like I thought Jesus was all family values and stuff and family friendly and now he sounds like wait don't love you're supposed to hate and it's strange because when we read Jesus elsewhere he says I want you to love your neighbor I want you to love your enemy. And they'll go, but then when it comes to my own flesh and blood, you want me to do something different? Well, this is where we have to kind of pry into his words a little bit more. And what I love about the New Living Translation that we're using through our study of Luke is it adds a little helpful note, not in the original language, but it gives us a contextual idea of what he's getting at so we don't go too far down some crazy culty road. And it says, by comparison, right? By comparison to Jesus... This should be of our spirit. And and, and what he's talking about here, when he says hate, so we can try to understand their their culture a little bit, he's not talking about the emotion of hate. He's not talking about antagonism. He's not talking about disdain. Like we, as kind of modern people, we take hate and we see it as an emotional thing. Either they hate me emotionally, or I hate them emotionally, or I hate that food emotionally, or I hate that movie, whatever it is. Like we have it more emotive in us, but... For them, it was a little bit different because in the Jewish culture, they didn't think in terms of degrees of difference. So what do we do? Say, rate it one to 10, right? What do you, what do you think of that person one to 10 or that movie one to 10 or that team one to 10? And we go, oh, I give it an eight or five or three or whatever else. The Jewish culture didn't operate in degrees. They operated in the sense of kind of all or none on concepts, right? So categorical differences. So for them, it was blessing or cursing first or last, right? So that's more the black and whiteness of how they saw things. And so what Jesus is trying to get at is not literally, I want you to hate your family in comparison, 
between all the other things of life and me, I must be first in everything. And then all those other things, while good and lovely and right, and you must invest into, they need to be a distant second in comparison kind of in comparison to me being first. That's what he's getting at here. So we don't want to run down crazy roads again to go, I'm supposed to hate the people around me. No, you're supposed to love the people around you, but love Jesus so much more that it's a distant second. Now here's the bonus in this, because at that point you go, well, that sounds still kind of weird. But here's how, again, God wants to do us a favor, and here's the favor. If we really do that, if we put Jesus first, love Jesus first, invest into Jesus first, then he reinvests into us. And he imprints in us his heart, his love, his sacrifice, all the things that really we admire in Christ, he places in us. And from that, we will more effectively love our family, love our friends, love our life far better than if we didn't put Jesus first. Because this gets us back to the real definition of love. The real definition of love is not an affection, right? It's not simply even a commitment. The real definition of love is God is love. So when we really love Jesus and we really love God, then the God who is love implants into us the ability to love even deeper, more fully, more sacrificially, more selflessly, and therefore more purely. This is why we say as a church, life is better with Jesus. It literally is. When Jesus is first, foremost, and center, all those other relationships and all those areas of priority take on a different emphasis and more freedom and purity in the context of that. And so... Jesus knows exactly what he's getting at here. Because when we're truly following, then we will be sincerely obeying, and that will bring deeper blessing. And so he challenges us and says, all right, you have to really be about my priorities. Part of this means the second thing in your notes, followers in training must accept Jesus' liabilities. As much as we want to own what he calls us to do, we need to realize that as much as there's a reward for following him, there is a risk also in following him. Verse 27, he says, And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, some people take this and go, Oh, we all have a cross to bear in life, and I need to bear my crosses in life, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. See, for them, they know that a cross means a shameful, harsh Uh, kind of degrading persecution and death. And that's what he's getting at. He's like, you know, in life, if you're really going to follow me, you have to be okay with not being liked because you follow me. You have to be okay with people looking down on you because you follow me. And so we need to be willing to do this for the sake of Jesus, but also we need to be willing, and this is the tough part, I want you to listen. We need to do it in the spirit of Jesus. Right? Think about how he embraced the cross. He did it with courage. He did it with compassion. He did it with joy deferred. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did it with kindness. Right? When, when everybody's cheering and laughing and mocking, and they think this is just a big party to see the bad guy killed, who is the only good guy to ever live and walk on the planet, when they're all doing that, he does not condemn them. He does not lash out at them. He does not chew them out. He does not call down fire from heaven and wipe them all out. He prays for them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even realize what they're doing as they're cheering, mocking, condemning. See, that's the spirit of how Jesus faces the cross. And and that's part of what it means to follow him. It's not just that we take up our own cross, but we face our own cross as he faced his. We learn from his example of loving those who didn't love him, of blessing those who wanted to curse him, 
uh, about caring for those who wanted to despise him in some way. Like, that's what we get to do. In fact, last week while we were meeting out here as a church, somebody drove by and they gave us half the peace sign. Right? They said, Jesus is number one, I guess is what they said. Right? Flying birds, whatever it was. And here's the deal. When somebody drives by and they flip us off because we're meeting out here as a church, you know what that is? That's an opportunity for us to go, man, our faith must have hurt you in some way. And, and I get you're angry, you're hurt, but you know what? I'm not going to be like, I'm taking that personally. I'm offended. I'm mad. How dare you flip me off? It's like, that's a chance for me to go, I'm, like, I'm going to pray for that person. They just flipped this off. I get it. We must have done something. Somebody did something at some point. They've been wounded in some way. And to take up the cross of Jesus says, you know what? For God, Father, forgive them. They, they don't realize what they do. That's, that's the Jesus stuff, right? That we are to own. And so that's how we follow. Now, is any of this easy? No, it's not easy to love your enemies. It's not easy to be okay with your critics. It's not easy to care for those who may want to... Uh, look on you and, and see you in lesser ways. I get it. This is why Jesus continues, and it's a third thing in your notes. Followers in training must embrace Jesus's certainty. Right? His certainty. If you think you want to follow him, put him first. Embrace a cross lifestyle. He says in verse 28, don't begin until you count the cost. He says, don't begin until you actually sit down and think this through because here's the deal starting is easy right starting a diet is easy starting an exercise regimen is easy starting school is easy starting a relationship is easy finishing is what is tough and so jesus says i want to be clear in advance what it means it means if you're going to follow me you're going to do the next right thing even when it's the inconvenient thing you're going to do my thing even when you're tempted to do your thing my kingdom and agenda will drive all the other agendas of your life, even when that presses you or requires of you to do a thing that you really don't want to do. You're going to say, but you know what? I'm going to lean into it anyway because I've said, Jesus, I am following you. And Jesus, you did all the hard stuff. And so I'm going to do the hard stuff too, right? It means we're going to act and react in our world in ways that Jesus wants us to act and react because his world is upside down and backwards from the way our world does things. And so we're going to do those upside down and backwards things as well, right? Taking our cues from the one who does it different. So he says, count the cost in advance. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might, complete, you might only complete part of the foundation before running out of money, and then everybody's going to laugh at you, right? You started, but you didn't finish. He says, there's that person that started the building, couldn't afford to get it done. Verse 31, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 can, can defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? He says, if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss the terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. See, those who start following Jesus aren't the great ones of the kingdom. It's those who finish who are the great ones, those who have counted the cost. And so from this, Jesus says, all right, here is really the cost. Verse 33, he says, so you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. Everything. So does this mean today you need to go home, gather up all your stuff and give it to Fred and Lucy next door? Like, all right, here's all my stuff, Fred and Lucy. 
No, it doesn't literally mean you need to give it up to all your neighbors, but it does literally mean you need to give it up all to God, where you say, God, you know what, you, you get it all. You get my, my marriage, and you get my family, you get my job, and you get my wealth, and you get my future, you get my fears and my hopes, you get it all. You're in control of it. Whatever you want to do with me, I want to do what you want me to do, because I've said I want to follow you. Like, that's the heart that he is looking for. We have to give up everything. Everything. Because we are called to be different, because only in being different will we make a difference. If we're just like everybody else, but we claim Jesus, we make no differences. We, in fact, maybe will do more damage than good. No, to be different, that is how we're going to make a difference. Therefore, fits number four in your notes, must live Jesus's effectivity. Yes, that is a word, right? Priority, liability, certainty, Effectivity. It rhymes, but it also applies. It is a noun. It is the power to be effective, the quality of being able to bring about an effect. And so what is the effect of following Jesus in this world? Verse 34. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how will you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears should listen and understand. So, salt in Jesus' culture, very popular, very needed, and it was a commodity, so much so that they actually paid soldiers in salt. Because if you had salt, it preserves food, right? It actually purifies wounds, and it intensifies flavors, right? Like you go to McDonald's and you get their fries, and you pour that salt on, ooh, so good. So good, right? So it does all of those things. But diluted salt, and by that in their culture, what would happen is people would mix the salt with other additives to try to make more salt, and it would get diluted and more diluted over the time. You can't really lose salty flavor, but salt can get dumped in with other stuff, and pretty soon it's useless. It just takes up space, and it takes up weight. Or, or even worse than that, he says, it becomes an environmental hazard. If you put the salt on soil, it makes the salt worse. If you put it in the dung pile, it doesn't allow you to have good compost. So it's problematic. And he says, in the same way, a person who says, I follow Jesus, but does not exhibit the saltiness, the positive saltiness of Jesus, you ready? Is worse than a non-Christian. An unsalty Christian, Jesus is saying, is worse than a non-Christian. That's how committed he is to this vision, right? Because he doesn't want religious Christians and he doesn't want hypocritical Christians and he doesn't want fair-weathered Christians and legalistic Christians and worldly Christians because he knows those bring more damage than good so often to the kingdom. They end up creating this, this bad reputation for Jesus. They think they lift him up but they actually drag his reputation down with their piety or whatever else. And so Jesus is like, no, I, I need people that are really committed really committed to taking ownership of what it means to follow me. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, it's going to be a challenge. But what he wants to do is flavor the world with the kingdom. The world is bland, but his salt is good. He wants the healing of the kingdom to touch the hurting of the world. He wants the preservation of the kingdom to touch a decaying world. And not by being followers of religion or policy or politics or morality or party or ideology or philosophy. No, he's very clear. He wants us to follow a person. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to learn from him, to live for him, and to love him because in doing that, we will be truly different 
and we can bring that to others. Let's pray together. Jesus, your words, apart from anything I say, are a challenge in and of themselves. To just look at them in the raw, to take out any commentary I add, they confront us. And they confront us at a level where, frankly, we want to try to figure out how to doctor them up a little bit and, and say, that can't be, that's too much, that's too hard, that's too crazy, or whatever else. But, but that's what you call us to, to be so radically different like you. And I always go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It just doesn't play well in our world. It is so backwards from our world, right? To, that to be salt in that way. Right, that's how you open that sermon, basically. You're like, you're the salt of the earth, and then you go through all this stuff about what it means to be like salt, and it just means to be so opposite of our world and our attitudes, our dispositions, our fears, our faith, our trust, different with our money, different with our priorities, different with our sense of forgiveness, different with our sense of love toward the unlovely or those who hate us. I mean, you're altogether different, but I know that it will change the world. I pray that we will believe that more than anything else. I pray that we believe your life and your way will change the world. So help us to do that. Guide us in what it means to do that. And may we, in a clumsy way even, rely on you every day to do that. So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen.